Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 5. So please continue to pray for uh, Virginia and Rebecca will be in the um, ER for probably the balance of, t- of today. Maybe they'll get uh, admitted. I'm not sure today, and we hope that that will happen. Rebecca's stable. She's acting like her normal self, um, but obviously her her numbers or indicators around her kidney function are not good. So uh, we don't believe her life is in danger at this point, but you know when you talk about kidney failure, it's not it's not good. So okay, Acts chapter five. Uh, We left off last week in verse 16. We're picking up today in verse 17. And we are going to read together down to verse 32, although it's our intent to complete the chapter today. So let's begin reading here, Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came And called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent um, to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the high priest, the captain of the temple, And the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. Then one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word. And we trust that you will bring illumination to our hearts, that you will honor your word, that you will be the teacher, and that we will be the listeners and the students and the receivers of every good and perfect gift that comes from the Father of lights above this morning to us as we listen. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday, of course, we consider the first part of chapter 5, 
this story of Ananias and Sapphira. And, you know, it's such a challenging story, isn't it? Because we see here in the Bible God judging and killing someone for sin. And as we considered that last week, and I've been thinking about it all week as well, you know, this issue of God wanting his church to be pure. I don't know if you considered as you listened last week or as you thought about this passage, but, you know, if God applied those standards to the church today, how many of us would be sitting here? By his grace and his mercy, we are here and he, he mercifully tolerates our hypocrisy. And, you know, hypocrisy is as it was judged last week. You know, we wonder why. Why, God, did you make an example of Ananias and Sapphira? And pa- Pastor Mitch did a wonderful job looking at that. And, of course, in uh, the end of chapter 4, we find Barnabas had come and he had uh, sort of made this this effort, he sold some land and saw the needs of the people there um, in Jerusalem as God has established this church, this organic thing is happening. Nobody knows what's going on and where it's going. And as he saw the need, he had the means and he sold the land and gave the money to, to help take care of the needs of the people who likely had stayed behind since Pentecost and were just enjoying what was happening, what God was doing, this new thing. And of course, no one had commanded anyone to give anything. This was something that was just happening. It was a move of God. It was a move of the Holy Spirit. And yet we aren't told the details, but as Ananias and Sapphira came and they sold a possession as well and came to give the money, there was something about it. Um, Can you guys take that down? Yeah, thank you. There was something about uh, the giving, the way that Barnabas gave that was just a blessing to the church and everyone knew. Uh, I don't think uh, Barnabas was giving in an ostentatious way so that people could know what was going on and look at him in some you know, holier-than-thou way. But as Barnabas gave, it was a blessing and people were just, they were amazed at what God was doing. And now Ananias and Sapphira come. And again, we don't have the details, but as they gave... They gave in such a way to sort of almost lead people to believe that they had given greatly, that they had given sacrificially. And they pretended to give in the same manner, the same heart that Barnabas had given. And of course, as we studied the passage last week and looked at it, you know, they could have given whatever they wanted. You know, there's no, there was no requirement that they had to give or that they had to give a certain amount. But they came and they gave. And they did it in such a way that first and foremost, as as Peter called them out, he said, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And in lying to the Holy Spirit, that they had also really lied to the people because you see hypocrisy or acting, putting on a mask and pretending is really lying, isn't it? It's pretending to be something that you're not. And so as this had happened in the church and God wanting to keep his church pure. And, you know, there's many scenarios here as you read the commentators, there's a lot of speculation as to why God might have done this to them. One commentator had posed the thought that perhaps these people were sort of 
in church leadership, and they were sort of making their way into that arena. And maybe God, of course, didn't want them to go into that arena, to to get promoted as church leaders, and certainly not in the manner of pretending to be something or someone that they were not, to be more spiritual than they, they were. And so for whatever reason, God, of course, judged them and he, he took their lives from them and he judged them quite harshly. And this issue of God judging sin, you know, normally these things are reserved for when we meet God face to face or that harshness is reserved, of course, for the great white throne judgment for those people who never gave their lives to Christ. And certainly God does judge his people. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 12, we find this amazing passage about the discipline of the Lord and how God disciplines those whom he loves. But in this case, the discipline was quite severe. You you recall, of course, that there were many times in the Old Testament where God judged people harshly for actions that they had committed, such as uh, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of uh, Eli the priest, of Uh, the two men whose names just escaped me, who had commanded strange fire before the Lord there with Moses and God judged them and took their lives. There were others with examples like that where God said, I can't tolerate these things. And in many respects, God himself was misrepresented. And we know that God, in some respects, judged Moses quite harshly Uh, When Moses misrepresented him before the people where God said, speak to the rock and let the water come forth. And Moses in his anger took his staff and struck the rock and God called him aside and he said, okay, you can't go into the promised land because you misrepresented me before the people. And so that is really in, in many respects the essence of what happened with this pretending with Ananias and Sapphira. And so it said there in verse 11 of chapter 5, so great fear came upon all the church and all who heard these things, as it should. And I think this story is included for our edification so that we might clean up our lives. We all need to, right? As I mentioned earlier, if God who does see us and he sees our hearts and he sees the thoughts and the intents of the heart, doesn't it say in Hebrews four of the word of God, that the word of God is sharper uh, and living. Um, It's sharper than any two-edged sword and is able to pierce to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God who sees, God who knows, you know, we're not fooling God with anything. He knows these things about us. And so the great fear that came upon the church should be coming upon the church today as we hear these things spoken. And then, of course, in verses 12 through 16, we saw that the Lord was moving, the Holy Spirit was moving, the signs and wonders were happening at the hands of the apostles. It says they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, so they were meeting there in the temple precinct in the temple area. Maybe they couldn't take their little church meeting into the temple itself, so they were just right there, maybe in the corner somewhere, just having a little church service, worshiping the Lord, teaching the Word of God right there on the the footsteps of the temple. And it says, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. 
So we had seen back at the day of Pentecost, 3,000. Then on the day that Peter and John preached in Solomon's portico, probably another 2,000 or so. Now the church is at 5,000 plus. Now more believers are being added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The Spirit of God is moving. It's estimated by, I think it was Josephus who recorded this, that by the time of 70 AD when Titus Vespasian came into Jerusalem to destroy it, that there were well over 100,000 believers in the city of Jerusalem alone. So that God had been working and moving in the city of Jerusalem was evident as he just continued to pour out his spirit. And then these crazy things with the the sick people coming out as, as Peter walked by and they had sort of, you know, begun to regard him and somewhat of a supernatural way, and they believed that if the shadow of Peter, you know, touched them as they walked by, they might be healed. And that's very reminiscent, of course, of the woman with the issue of blood who came up from behind Jesus in a crowd and said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. You know, so we look at these things and maybe we think in a sort of a pitiful way of people who are like, well, you know, if I can just get close enough that the shadow might touch me. But, you know, God was gracious, wasn't he? And he still healed them because they were reaching out to the Lord in faith. And even if it might have been a little misguided, you know, uh, later we'll find out in Ephesus, Paul's working hard and people are stealing his sweaty rags and taking them to people and laying them on them so that they might be healed. I mean, the superstitious side of faith is there. Uh, You know, certainly God's not sanctioning it, but it's being reported because people were just desperate for God. And they were reaching out to him in faith any way that they could. And it said there in verse 16, And the multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And it says, And they were all healed. You know, rarely when we read about the ministry of Jesus did it say he healed everybody. But here in these days as he's pouring out his spirit, People are being healed, and it said in this scenario that all were being healed who were being brought to the apostles. And so as we enter our passage today in verse 17, it seemed like the church leaders had had enough of this. And then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. They were upset these guys were stealing their limelight, that they were there in the temple precinct preaching and teaching and healing and And amazing, wonderful, miraculous things were happening and they couldn't deal with it. And they laid their hands on the apostles and they put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. They were arrested, why? For miracles? For healing sick people? For preaching the gospel? They couldn't deal with it. And so they arrested them and put them in prison. And it's interesting here in verse 19, but at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now the angel didn't need permission, did he, to let them out? He he didn't go to the Sanhedrin and say, hey guys, if it's okay with you, we're going to go let those guys out. No, angels don't need keys. They don't need permission from men to do what God has told them to do. And there's an example for us. We're going to get to that. So they go in and they do this. Now we find out later in the story that when they were sent to get the the apostles and bring them out, 
And, and by the way here, when it says that they threw them in prison, verse 18, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison, notice here it's not saying Peter and John, it's saying the apostles. We believe that this was all of them, all 12 of them. So now consider, now you, you, we're looking at this with human eyes, the leaders of the church, the 12 apostles, the 12 pastors, the leaders of this new thing called the church, they all just got arrested and thrown into prison. What's going to happen? How will the church go forward? Oh my gosh, this is crazy. And, and, and people start to panic. <laughs> What's going on here? And so the Lord sends an angel. Remember, angels are created beings. They're ministering in the presence of God. We've seen many times in the scriptures where God sends his angel. Angel means messenger. To be his messenger from the very presence of God to go and deliver a message. He, he obviously went, uh, you know, an angel was sent to Gideon. Remember all these times that these angels appeared in the Old Testament and they brought a word from the Lord. An angel was sent uh, to uh, Mary. An angel was sent to... Um, what was her cousin who had John? Who? Elizabeth, thank you. Right? But, but angels were sent, right? They were the messengers, and they were sent to these situations from God to deliver a message. And at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now they've, up to this point, they've been spoken to harshly, they've been warned, and now they are being arrested. Now what's next for them? But the Lord, speaking through the angels, said, here's your marching orders, here's your directive. Go stand in the temple, go back and do what you did before you got arrested. Go right back to the same place and do the same thing over again. I don't know about you, I might be saying to the Lord, just can we discuss this for a minute? You know, like maybe we can move to somewhere a little less conspicuous, a little less visible, Lord. You know, no, go right back to the temple, do what you did before, speak to the people all the words of this life preaching and teaching, bringing the word of God to people. And notice that as God delivered them, and I want us to consider this in the light of, like we say, hey, hey, how can I pray for you? Think about our prayer requests. So often our prayer requests are peace, safety, comfort. Just pray that my life right now would just get back to where it was before, that place of peace and rest and routine where it was just everything was awesome. You know, my, my routine, my life's been disrupted. And what did God do here? He said, go right back and do what you did before. They were delivered not unto peace and safety, but unto usefulness. They were delivered not unto peace and safety, but unto boldness to continue to do what God had told them to do. Now, we're going to find out. Because we have this misguided view of God thinking that, well, if God really loved me, he would answer my prayer, give me what I need, and there wouldn't be any harm that would come to me. God forbid that there would be harm, that I would get hurt. Oh, God, protect me from getting hurt. And what's going to happen? They're going to go right back into the fire. They are delivered to serve God. 
And when they heard that, verse 21, <clears throat> they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. So they got let go at night. They went right back. The temple didn't open until six in the morning. They were there when the doors opened and they just kept on doing what they were doing the day before. <clears throat> now the high priests and those who were with him came and called the council together. They threw them in jail yesterday at, uh, you know, around uh, dusk. And with all the elders of the children of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported and said, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside the doors. Um, and when we opened them, we found no one on the inside. So essentially the angel came. Apparently those guys were either asleep or the angel just came and basically froze them in time, opened the door, says, hey, you guys, come on out shut the doors back, took them out, and they never knew what happened. Because if they had, uh, you know, been basically, you know, knocked out or something, you know, they would have been put to death. So here the angel delivered them in a very complete way, didn't he? He just went in and, and took them out. It was a stealth operation, better than SEAL Team 6. These guys, the angel's so good, Right? So when the officers came, they didn't find them. They said, we found no one inside. Everything was secure. The high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things. They wondered what the outcome would be. They're like, well, what happened? Where'd they go? What are we going to do? We have to do something about this. We can't let this go on. So one came and told them saying, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. Excuse me. Uh, the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. And they should because the people were listening. God was moving. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, didn't we strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And you intend to bring this man's blood on us. So what were they concerned about? They were concerned about their reputation. <clears throat> they were concerned about their authority being challenged. And really, they had no authority but, but from God anyway. And really, of course, God didn't give them authority because they were not following the Lord. And so these men are challenging them. And now we have this juxtaposition between their word, didn't we strictly command you? And the angel, when he released them, said, go back and do exactly what you did before. Go preach and teach. Stand in the temple and do it. What do you do? You've got men over here threatening you, and you've got an angel. You've got the word of God has come to you and said, no, you stand in there. <clears throat> you be bold. Remember back in chapter 4, you guys prayed for boldness? Remember that in chapter 4, 13? Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, Acts 4, 29, now look, Lord, on their threats as they're praying and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. And for Acts 4, 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. That's, that's where they were prior to chapter five. That was their prayer. And now the angel has come and answered them. And in answering their prayer for boldness, he, he confirmed that boldness. And he said to them, you guys go get right back out there and do what you were doing. I'm with you. 
God's with you. So you have now the leaders, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin saying, we don't want you to do this. You've, look, you've filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. In reality, they filled Jerusalem with the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And isn't that what they were called to do? And isn't that what we are called to do? To fill the places where we are with the doctrine of Jesus Christ? Yes, that is what we're called to do. So Peter and the other apostles answered, and they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Truer words have never been spoken, have they? We ought to obey God rather than men. Now God has already revealed in his word, Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The words of Jesus, the charge he gave to his apostles right before he ascended to heaven. We ought to obey God rather than men. They had that word from Jesus. They had the word of wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And when the he, the Holy Spirit, has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We ought to obey God rather than men. And you see, these things were not just said to those men in that time. Certainly it was, but it's also spoken down through the annals of history to us today, his church, as we read these words. Yes, there are rules and principles around biblical interpretation, but these words are clearly spoken not just to his apostles, but to all disciples, to all who would come after. And as we are reading them today and hearing them, God is reaffirming to us that this is his word to his church. And so as Peter begins to speak, or rather continues to speak, and he says, uh, you know, you judge for yourselves, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. And him, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now, these religious leaders should have been preaching to Israel repentance of sins and to return from the, to the Lord from their idols and from their wicked ways. As you read the Old Testament in a very sweeping manner through the prophets, this is always God's word. Repent, return to the Lord, come back to the Lord. You're the Lord's people. God loves you. He wants you to come back to him. He wants you to seek him with all of your heart. And as Peter is there very boldly speaking to these leaders, to the Sanhedrin, I'd like to point out here that most likely Paul was sitting there as a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, Luke, who's writing this for us, we we find as we read through this, I think it's at, at chapter 16 where Luke begins to switch the pronouns and he says we, he begins to include himself as a part of the entourage traveling with Paul. But while Luke is chronicling this, 
perhaps he's get, perhaps Luke is getting some of the details from the apostles, but he's probably also getting some of it from Paul's perspective as he was then Saul of Tarsus there in the Sanhedrin. So it's interesting as he, as the word was preached here and it says him, God is exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior. He's letting them know that Jesus was resurrected and that Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God. And notice he's called something he's never called this anywhere else to be prince and savior. First use of the word savior in the book of Acts. And the word prince here means a pioneer, one who leads the way, an originator. Jesus did that, didn't he? That's who he was. He was a pioneer. He was the one who led the way. He was the originator of salvation. I want to read this to you from one of the commentators who really spoke to me. It said, one of the major themes of the book of Hebrews is let us press on to maturity quoted from Hebrews chapter 6. Listen to this. And we cannot mature unless we follow Christ, the pioneer, into new areas of faith and ministry. You see, our faith is not just about what we believe, is it? Our faith is about what we do with our faith. To be doers of the word and not merely hearers. God has exalted him to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus is our prince, he's our savior, and we cannot mature unless we follow Jesus, our prince and our savior, the pioneer, into new areas of faith and ministry. You see, faith is not passive, faith is active. Faith is not passive. Faith is active. We must take steps of faith. We read God's word. We believe God's word. And just as these men obeyed God's word through the angel as he spoke to them, and he said, get up and get back out there and keep doing what you're doing. I got, I got your six. Get out there. And, and now they're standing there in the midst of the Sanhedrin, Acts 5.32, and we are his witnesses. Yes, we are his witnesses, all of us. Remember back before the crucifixion, on the evening, Jesus had been arrested. The disciples, Peter, others following at a distance, you know, afraid of a little servant girl who says, hey, weren't you one of his? Oh, no, not me. But now here they are standing before the very same tribunal that Jesus stood before. They're being put on trial by the same men who put Jesus on trial. And look at the boldness of these men. We are his witnesses to these things and also is the Holy Spirit. So not only are we witnesses, but the Holy Spirit is a witness that what we're saying is true. The Holy Spirit is witnessing through us. Now they've they fully understood, they fully embraced everything Jesus said to them in the upper room in John 13 through 16 and 17, where he said, you know, I must go away so that I can send the Spirit And he says, he will give you utterance. He will call to your mind remembrance, perfect recall of things that need to be said at the right moment, at just the right time. You don't need to go to school to learn how to do public speaking. Just be filled with the Spirit and let God use you. And when they heard this, they were furious and they plotted to kill them. 
They were in good company, right? This was the same reaction they had when Jesus spoke to them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. Okay, court's in recess. You guys go back outside. We got to have a little chat here. And he said to the men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men for some time ago. Now notice he's sort of citing legal precedent here. This, this is just the perfect legal case, right? Some time ago, Thutius rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him and he was slain. And all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. And after this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it. Well, talk about truth coming from the mouth of someone who doesn't believe. Lest you even be found to fight against God. Remember when opposition comes, they're fighting against God. Don't take it personally. You know, Jesus said, Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The opposition of men in this case meant the approval of God. And these men, these apostles and others who came after them counted it a blessing A privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. So they agreed with him. They agreed with Gamaliel. And they said, oh, this sounds pretty good. Perhaps it'll come to nothing. We're not going to worry about it. Just let it go. So they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So notice now they've sort of upped their game a little bit, meaning the people who were the opposition. Aside from just warning them sternly and wagging the finger in their face, they beat them. And the implication here is that they beat them with 39 lashes of a rod. And they were saying, just in case you didn't hear us, we're going to apply a little pressure. Now remember, the angel of the Lord had delivered them, right? And what's happening to them? They're getting beaten for the name of Christ. God, did you not hear me? <laughs> no, I've delivered you to this. This is, this is good for you. It's good for you because now you understand that serving me costs something. That if you're going to take a stand for me, it's not going to be easy. It's not health, wealth, and prosperity. Throw that garbage away. Didn't Paul tell young Timothy, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution? The 21st American church, we're soft. Seriously, we are soft. In this case, neither the threats nor the beatings 
stopped them from witnessing for Christ. If anything, this persecution only made them trust God more and seek greater power in ministry. Wow. The beatings caused them to press into the Lord more and ask God for greater grace, for greater power. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. What a mindset, what an attitude. How do you stop people like that? Do we have that attitude? I would encourage you to underline verse 41 and say, Lord, give me that heart. Give me that attitude. Verse 42, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They didn't stop. They didn't give up. They just kept on doing what they were doing. They knew what God had called them to do. William Temple said that Christians are called to the hardest of all tasks to fight without hatred, to resist without bitterness, and in the end, if God grant it so, to triumph without vindictiveness. These men were treated harshly, weren't they? Severely. Because they spoke the name of Jesus. Because they believed in the salvation that Jesus brought. Because they listened to Jesus and they stood up and they spoke. And they preached and they taught. And remember, none of them had gone to school. None of them had training. They were fishermen. They were common people. If you will, they were blue-collar workers. They were uneducated. They were just men who were filled with the Spirit of God. History tells us that Matthew was beheaded with a sword, that Mark died in Alexandria after being dragged through the streets of the city, that Luke was hanged on an olive tree in Greece, that John died a natural death after being unsuccessfully boiled in oil. It didn't kill him. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. James the less was thrown from a height and then beaten with clubs. Philip was hanged. Bartholomew was whipped and beaten until death. Andrew was crucified and preached at the top of his voice to his persecutors until he died. Thomas was run through with a spear. Jude was killed with the arrows of an executioner. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded, as was Barnabas. Paul was beheaded in Rome. And yet they counted themselves worthy to suffer for his name. All because these men, these apostles, had the attitude of obeying God rather than men. What does it mean to obey God rather than men in our context today? Well, I'm going to be a little bold this morning. If anything ever comes around again, another coronavirus or whatever, are we going to stop meeting and close our doors? No. Are we going to, you know, not sing because it might spread germs? Nope. Now that, that's, just, that's just one application, right? It's an obvious one from the last two years. But what if you're witnessing to someone at the water cooler at work? And the boss comes by and hears you and says, hey, wait a minute, you can't do that at work. 
What are you going to do? Might want to think about that. What if you're on the street somewhere sharing the gospel with people and the police come by and say, hey, you can't do that. Well, what are you going to do? What if you choose to stand in front of an abortion clinic with a sign or handing out Bibles or tracts and they come by and they say, you can't do that. What are you going to do? What does it mean to obey God rather than men? Laws have already been made that we were headed in a direction where the church is going to be muzzled. That's the way I see it, at least as I read things and I see what's happening. What if the time comes where they say that because I read some scripture that talks about how God looks at certain sins, and they say, you can't do that, that's hate speech. Then what? Okay, we won't do that anymore. You know, we're, we're going to stop broadcasting our services so they, they can't hear it. Is that what we do? We need to think about this. What does it mean to obey God rather than men? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to take a stand for Christ? Our Christianity should not be weak, behind a curtain, in the safety of our home. If we have been saved, if we have been marked by the blood of Jesus Christ, we're going to be tested at some point in time. It's going to happen. I'm so grateful for our brother as we shared this video this morning of what he's doing so boldly. The Spirit of God's upon him. We need to pray for him and Jed and all the rest of them who are out there doing these things. But they're in a place where it costs them something. They could get arrested easily for what they're doing. And this isn't even a religious persecution. This is just, they love people. They care about people. They're, they're trying to help them. They're trying to help the church. They're trying to help anyone they can help. And this, this isn't even necessarily getting persecuted for their faith if something happens. But they, under, they understand the cost. You know, there's a parable where Jesus talked about counting the cost and no one goes into a battle without counting the cost or no one first takes on, you know, a project or whatever without understanding the cost. What about us? This doesn't mean that we only intellectually evaluate something and don't pray. We do both. But faith should always win out. You know, caution and comfort and convenience, sometimes we make our decisions in that direction because we don't want to be you know, discomforted. We don't want to be challenged. We don't want to live outside of our box. I want to get up every morning and do my routine the way I always do it. But maybe God wants you to do something different. You know, I read that quote earlier, and I'll read it again just because it really spoke to me. We cannot mature unless we follow Christ, the pioneer, into new areas of faith and ministry. I hope you have devotions. I hope you're reading the Word of God. I hope you're praying. If you're not, please begin to do that. But as we read God's Word, God will speak to us. Every time I sit down and read his word, when I come to the end of my time and I have to close it, I, I can tell you unequivocally, I never, I, I don't want to end. I don't want to stop. I feel like, I feel like I'm robbed because all well, the clock is here. I got to go to work. I got to do this. And you know, I got to go serve my earthly master now and do all of that stuff. But 
God will speak to you from his word. Keep a journal. I've been writing down things that God's been speaking to me recently. And I've been, I've been contemplating what this means to follow Christ, our pioneer, into new areas of faith and ministry. What does God want to do? What does he want to do with me? What does he want to do with you? What does he want to do with us? I, I don't have all those answers, but I know that, you know, sitting here and, and doing nothing is not an option. We, we have to get engaged, and we want the Lord to use us for his glory. So these are things that we should be praying about. These are things that we should be seeking in our lives. These men were not afraid. Fear and faith do not exist together. They trusted God. They were okay with the status quo being adjusted. They were okay with the, the routine of life being upset. Because in the end, all that matters is following him and doing what he says. From day to day, as we read the book of Acts here, and just, just note this, just, just observe it. What happened from day to day, from situation to situation, it was different. God was just moving, hey, go over here, go over there, speak to them, preach to that person, do this, do that. Okay, you're getting beaten again. Oh, you're getting strung up. Oh, you're in a jail, you're arrested, you're in the stocks. You have chains on your feet. Now, all of a sudden, God speaks to you in a dream, Paul, and he tells you to go over here when you wanted to go over there. Now you're thrown in jail as a result of listening to the voice of the man who spoke to you in that dream? Yeah, following God costs you something. We got to get rid of the idea of that faith fits in a box and it has a bow on it. And it's like a gift at Christmas and it's just wonderful and it gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling. That's not the faith of the scriptures. The faith of the scriptures calls us to move out into the unknown without knowing what, where, how, or whatever. And just trusting God to provide and to lead. That's faith. Lord, we just come to you this morning knowing that like these men, you are challenging us to go beyond our comfort zone, to go beyond what we think we know, to go beyond our intellect and our rational human ability to rely upon you. Faith is risky. Faith involves things that we don't know, we don't see, we don't understand. Just like when you spoke to Abraham, your servant, you said, get out from your people and go to a place that I will show you. Lord, may we have faith. May we have a bold faith. May we have a faith that is not content to just get up and do the same things over and over and over. May we be open to things, new ventures in faith that you might speak to us. And just as these men were men of faith, men of the word, men filled with the Holy Spirit, may we in like manner be men and women of faith, men and women filled with the Holy Spirit, men and women of prayer. And may you do in us similar things that you did with these men with these people, with the early church. Lord, may we follow you into the great unknown, our, our pioneer, Jesus, trusting you and not demanding answers, but just wanting to see your face, Lord. 
We declare this morning that you are not just our Savior, you are our Lord, you are our King. And Lord, for any today who do not know you, who've never trusted in you, we ask that this might become for them the the moment where they meet you, that they might invite you uh, into their lives, that they might just say, Jesus, I don't know what all this means, but I want to follow you, I want forgiveness. And Lord, I repent and I turn and I go your way instead of my way. Lord, draw me close to you. So Lord, we love you, we bless you. As we come to your table now, might you speak to us, might you minister to us as we remember the good you have done for us, your mercy, your grace, your love on the cross where you shed your blood for my sin and for the sin of the whole world that we might have a relationship with you, God, our Father, through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit and the strength of your word. Lord, we love you, we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.